नमस्ते एज द अवतार ऑफ द न्यू एज एंड एज इज द वर्क ऑफ एवरी अवतार इट्स ए टू फोल्ड वर्क वन इज टू ब्रिंग आउट द ट्रूथ्स ऑफ द पास्ट एंड द सेकेंड इज इंटीग्रेटेड विद द स्पिरिट ऑफ द फ्यूचर सो दिस इज हाउ वी कैन लुक एट द एंटायर रेंज ऑफ शोरबिंदोज वर्कस on one side he brings out the great glory of the past through his numerous writings right up to volume 20 which is um, you know the renaissance of india the, or the foundations of indian culture and then we see in the life divine though in every work we see even the vedas upanishads they are all connected to the future the gita connected to the future so but most characteristically in the life divine we see this work of linking the past with the future at the same time bringing in something new which actually explains the past in a better light and the future in a much more clearer um, state so uh, we can say in a certain sense that shurabindo is from the future so what it means is that every time the human consciousness grows it brings in a new light and in that new light we can look at the present we can look at the past and we can understand our relation with the world with ourselves and with god that's what philosophy is about it's about exploring the relations of man with the world around him exploring the relation of man with himself and exploring the relation of man with god so these are the three basic things about philosophy but ordinarily philosophy hinges on a logical Uh, there is a little difference between logic and philosophy but by and large it's a weaving or a climbing of thought towards higher and higher possibilities and ranges um by based on certain observations or sometimes even in its own right thought can keep on extending itself in the mental world until it enters into a realm of abstraction well if we are expecting that from the life divine then that won't be correct because shurbindos uh, though the life divine not only is regarded as a monumental work of philosophy in 1943 it was nominated for the nobel prize of literature and uh, by francis young husband and that year actually everything was done even the swedish uh, academy had um, accepted but that year the prize itself was not given because the whole committee was disbanded that is the time when the world war was going on second world war it was closing towards its end but it was also in its all fears the whole world was in a fears disarray and then again in 1950 it was once again shobindo was nominated both for literature as well as for peace and um, well again it was uh, it was not accepted which in a way is uh, right both from two perspectives one is to put shurbindo in the galaxy of uh, you know either <laughs> nobel laureates or peace brokers if i may say so sounds very it's like actually to belittle him uh, when he was asked by one of the disciples that sir it seems the war is left behind in the past this post 1944 45 of course so it seems now with this new era of peace starting and war being left behind in the past of mankind the dreams of the life divine are likely to get true what do you say and the master replied that uh, my views uh, the life divine is not dependent on any war if anything my views are quite the contrary <laughs> meaning there why war may be even if war is necessary 
to establish the life divine upon earth of course not war as we understand it will be so and indeed in a certain sense this war is a constant process within us we um climb from the past to the future and in that process we have to struggle with our own ideas conceptions ways of life then only we can move toward the future this is one of the difficulties that people face reading shirobindo particularly the life divine especially those of us who may have had the i don't know good fortune or <laughs> misfortune of reading a lot of philosophy at least uh, i had read plenty of it and uh, fortunately when shirobindo came it was by then it was all washed away in agnosticism but otherwise what happens we have a conception so all the time when we are reading the life divine we are thinking oh where is shankara in it is he trying to refute shankara is he trying to say something about shankara because till the life divine we see that he was established in the indian setting as somebody who is the icon of uh, spiritual metaphysics physics and philosophy so there are people who asked shirobindo even one of his close disciples like charuchandra dat and some others who who wrote a review on the life divine and said that you know the life divine is uh, like a uh, he um, argues against shankara's position and uh, though he takes things from it develops further and shubindo says there is nothing of this kind besides he clarified while in india we do have the illusionist vedanta of shankara but this illusionist vedanta of some kind has been there all over the world plotinus if you take the thoughts of plotinus or the world is a vanity of vanities a dream which has you know uh, a kind of nightmare so this idea that this world is a vanity of vanities call it an illusion or whatever has been there in the psyche not only of india but also in the world in some way wherever philosophical thinkers have stressed their necks and minds and heads um in some way or the other but most prominently in india of course post shankara and post buddha and shankara um had been deeply interested in entrenched in the indian mind and thought which led to the progressive decline of india but shurbindo is not at all basing himself on shankara's philosophy or any philosophy he clarifies people try to find uh, whether he is based on hegel they try to find picking up just one sentence that shurbindo wrote that it is based on nietzsche i have seen a book written on comparing shurbindo and nietzsche now shurbindo himself says that there is nothing of these influences inside me if at all i have been influenced by anything in his own words it is the gita and the upanishads and which i can we can you know obviously understand that so and in life divine we'll see constantly from the rigveda from the upanishads sometimes from the gita uh, the quotes written before the beginning of each chapter of course these quotes were found by ab purani based on i think it was shubindo's suggestion but based on that these quotes were found which were considered appropriate at the beginning of each chapter and uh, some of them may go with it some of them we have to look a little deep but the important part is the chapters themselves and they were written between 1914 and 1919 when the world was being ravaged by the throes of the first world war and we see it's so interesting that when the world was sinking in a state of hopeless abjection to all kinds of uh, violence aggression and leaving aside the first world war look at what was happening in india look at all over the world either people were there was a kind of atheism which was based on a complete materialistic outlook of life positivism um, imperialism the communism of the marxist kind which completely denies the existence of any greater reality during that time 
during the war it's literally like when there is dense darkness shobindo had gone into the darkness and was bringing out the sun which is hidden inside it shobindo through the pages of the arya 64 pages a month and and when he was asked that how did you think of writing he said there was never 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 three times never any philosopher in me so but why did he write it he says because um, i was left with this work to do and suddenly um, mother's husband had started apparently i mean it was at the mother's inspiration but they left after 9 months um, of stay of of starting this whole initiative from june the uh, 21st june to we can say 7 months 8 uh, months so he says i was left with the entire blessed thing to do it all alone single handedly and because he did believe that um he says that it was my belief that you can turn the yogic power and the yogic knowledge into any direction therefore i took up this challenging work of writing philosophy otherwise he says primarily i am a poet and a politician both things he says <laughs> but the last thing that is there is philosophy and yet he wrote wonderful philosophy it's over 1100 pages of philosophy printed pages of philosophy which is one of the highest kind if you look at the reviews that people gave at one point of time even new york times now of course it is a very biased paper but he it wrote that it looks like he is moving among galaxies from one galaxy to another and seeing everything from that vantage point so what really is life divine it is philosophy and not philosophy it is philosophy in the sense it describes to us in metaphysical terms in um, about this world its relation with man and with relation to god it is not philosophy i mean i am quoting shurbindo it's not philosophy in the sense he said it is not strictly philosophy because it's not just a straining of the thought to arrive at uh, uh these conclusions it is based on experience working downwards using thought as a structure to reveal through uh what he has best described in his poem seer departed page by page to the dim children of earth were given so it is literally darshan vision and experience and that vision and experience and realization he has put through a body of words and because that vision and experience is of a highest order it has used the mind used logic and every everything else to express itself so that is the beauty of the life divine and it should be separated from the usual body of philosophical literature which is a straining of thought based on certain one sided experience and then for example he gives in one of his letters famous letters he says that uh, i have never considered this distinction between this worldliness and other worldliness he says uh, all that is normally considered as this worldly has entered in my mental field as interest and certain things like politics even in my life so he he says that my life has had its complete share of this worldliness at the same time he says that since i set my foot on apollo bandar i started entering into supraphysical planes started getting other worldly experiences but these experiences were not divorced in life but uh, from this material world but had an infinite bearing upon it for instance he had an experience where he saw all material objects are filled with an infinite consciousness then there was another where even though the world was appearing the like the maya was experience illusion illusionist experience was like a cinema which is like figures floating in a vast nothingness yet he felt the presence of an imminent 
uh, an imminent presence which was pervading this entire space and filling every material object. And he says, in that condition, in that state of silent consciousness, I stayed for months. And even when it passed away, it left the impact of the peace and freedom deep within, which was never taken away. And that space, which was empty, started getting filled up with a new vision, a new action, which spoke directly, which wrote directly, and conducted all its affairs directly. And then he says, later on, I realized that this is the dynamic side of Brahman, which of course is the Shakti, the Divine Mother. So this is the experience in which he was entering all these supraphysical world, their splendor, tire after tear. He had the experience of Mayavad, which um, you know induced Shankara to write everything, and he writes a very, in a very funny way about it. He says, you know, as to Mayavad, well. I had its experience without as much as um, asking for it. And then he saw this entire vacant space being filled with uh, Vasudeva. And, and uh, then, then he says something very interesting. He, why was he really pursuing all this? He says, my quest was not to just philosophize things. But the quest was to find what is the link between this world and the other world? And he saw how the supraphysical worlds and the very highest Brahman consciousness, how it has an infinite bearing upon our own life, on even the material objects and how it informs them, permeates them, penetrates them. It inhabits them and is taking it forward on a march, of, on an evolutionary march. So the life divine is basically his vision and experience which has been put in a body of words. So, um, when we look at it like that, uh, and before we start a little more, just to share an experience which I heard of uh, someone, very authentic experience, that there was a man, young, uh, there was a man who, was, who looked like from very rustic background. And it seems once he came to our Ananda Bhai's father, Madhusudan Reddiji, with the copy of the Life Divine, and he asked him, that I want to, can you explain to me this book? I have heard that you can explain this book to me. And he asked, but why have you come to me? You, I mean, he, looking at him, it didn't look like he is, uh, you know, up to, you know, understanding a kind of very high intellectual thought. And he said, I don't know. I was just passing through a stall and I saw this book and it attracted me because I could see lines of blue light emanating from it. And I am wonderstruck that what really is this book which is releasing this kind of blue light? And it seems he said uh, that, well, um, then I don't need to explain to you <laughs> because you have gone beyond the need for understanding. Uh, basically, that's how one should look at these works, not suddenly get ready for a mental gymnastics. One doesn't have to read Nimbark and Ramanuj and uh, Dvaita Dvait and Vishishta Dvait and Abhinav Gupta and uh, Shankara and Hegel and uh, Plotinus to understand the life divine. Better if one is not ready on any of these. Because then you have a very clean ground. And then you receive it like this. Otherwise, all that we read starts passing through all these uh, mental cobwebs. Uh, or if not cobwebs through mental, uh, you know, that uh, maze where you start from one end and you have to go right up to the end and there are many such holes in which you enter. So we tend to understand that way. And so the best way is to quieten the mind and read it. There is the story of Amrita, two stories. Once he was reading 
the Arya, the life divine used to come there and Shurabindu, it seems, asked him that, uh, what are you reading? He said, sir, the life divine. And then looked up very innocently, he said, I don't understand anything. And Shurabindu <laughs> says, doesn't matter, you read it, the understanding will come later. And the, another story again about the life divine is uh, same Amritha and two others, I have forgotten their names, they were reading the life divine and mother was passing by up the staircase. And she asked, you know, Amritha's room is right there. And she asked, uh, Amrit, what are you doing? Mother, we are reading the life divine. What are you reading? Mother, I am reading Brahman, Ishwara, Maya, cosmic indeterminates and very with this sense of humor said, Mother, I understand nothing of it. And Mother seems gave a tap on all three, the head. And then she went up and all of them were projected in the Brahman consciousness. <laughs> After she came back, after half an hour, they were all transbound. And she brought them down. And she said, hey, I can give you this experience like this. But this is not what we are here for. We are here for establishing the life divine upon earth. So life divine is not to be read only as a metaphysical thought. If No, no objection if somebody wants to read it. But as the way toward the future, which Shobindo has shown us in terms of an intellectual understanding, in terms of the thought, just like in synthesis, we have primarily the practice, the theoretical background of the practice. In the life divine, we have the theoretical framework. But again, it's not theory in the way we understand it because it's not built through a straining of thought, but through a direct experience. And uh, it's a joy to read this book. We remember Dara in Ashram used to write lovely limericks, you know, short little four-liners. So when the life divine came out, he wrote a limerick, life divine. Mother's wine, it is out, let us shout. So <laughs> there was, <laughs> you should write things like that, that Mother Almighty, where is my tea? So, so it is indeed like a wine, I must tell you. It is to be read like, um, uh, I have felt like this and I have shared this. It is to be read like the letter of my uh, beloved. So if uh, you love somebody deeply and he writes a letter, so what do you do? You say, I don't understand. You love, so you will try to read and try to understand. And here we have the big advantage that the beloved is none else but the divine. So if we read it with this idea that I don't understand, it's a very good state to begin with, state of humility that I really don't know. You tell me. You have written this 1100 pages. I want to read it. I want to understand because you have written it. I don't want to leave anything that you have written. But you must make me understand. And I can assure uh, both from my own experience and experiences of many others, the understanding will come, develop, grow. And uh, there are lines of light. And actually, if you really look at it, it's not a difficult book. Let me be very, very clear on this. There are some passages, some chapters which are difficult. But by and large, it flows very smoothly. The thought is, um, I know some eyebrows, but fairly simple and direct because it's direct. Shobindu is not playing with words. It's very direct. When he says it is this, it is this. And when we look at it that way, it is so simple and direct. But still, if one wants to read the life divine uh, in a way that it appears simple, then I would uh, advise that please read Kant and <laughs> Gete or in our own Shankaracharya's Vivek Chudamani and few others. You'll find it very simple because it's so direct. It's like literally showing us things. He is actually describing what he is seeing. 
one can see it and based on what he is describing he is giving us the logical links that look this is like this because of this look this like this because of this and you can connect like one of the mahavakyas in the very first chapters you know when he says uh, all problems of existences are fundamentally problems of harmony now you know we never looked at it like that but isn't it so true what is abstract about it <laughs> it's you see that yes from the uh, health of my body to the cosmic management of the galaxies to the you know the way the atoms organize themselves to the interpersonal relationships of uh, man to man everything ultimately is the problem of harmony and then he would give us hope that it starts with a discord but ends up with a greater harmony which makes it so simple direct clear and we can connect it with the, our own experience of life so this is the fundamental thing about the life divine and of course it has it was written in two parts i mean it was released in two parts it was revised extensively during the second world war so first world war was when it was born second world war when it grew up into its full stature and it was it is sure been those wonderful gift to man and as we can see it is there are basically you will see two books in it the first book contains 28 chapter and the next book contains two parts where we again have 28 chapters so it's a plan of 28 and 28 and in the first book there is a description primarily of man is it follows in a way the scheme of the gita or we may use the word a scheme of isha upanishad in isha upanishad we see that uh, though just eight shlokas but there is a initial first three shlokas which set the tone then the next which develop upon it then still further which develop further and the same thing we see in the gita six chapters six chapters six chapters so first six chapters in a way give us the broad uh, hint suggestion there are number of luminous points and then the next six chapter develop upon it and the last six chapters bring everything into a culminating whole the same thing we see in the life divine the first part and the second part if i may say so in book 2 the first part and then finally the last uh, part to a book to and especially the last six chapters it all leads to a grand culmination and as should be those uh, uh, way of approach with life is that a teacher should one bring out what is already within so it brings out the best is that when we read the life divine we begin to connect with yes that's it that's it that's it so it's something so wonderful uh, at one point you feel that this is how you felt life but you never knew so he gives an expression to what deep within we really feel second part is that he says one must go from near to far so again he takes us by the hand from the human aspiration so first passage of the life divine is about what is human aspiration what are we seeking and in a way the entire life divine is the fulfillment of this seeking it is the entire journey of man from his first aspiration to the final stage where he'll be going and all the intermediary passages in between so let's see what he what is this very first aspiration which he speaks of in fact it starts with as i said every uh, chapter starts with um, some quotes from the rig veda the upanishads now here it starts with two quotes which describe the flame within which moves towards further and further dawns now why he is describing it because precisely the human aspiration does not end with any past realizations 
this is something very important that it moves forward this flame of aspiration within us the human aspiration will not cease it's in fact even when it has discovered the ultimate reality it will not cease but go further and further towards still greater uh, and greater manifestation because that, that is its purpose so it starts with this um, these two quotes from the rigveda she follows to the goal of those who is she she is the usha the dawn the dawn that comes when a flame is lit inside and then this is only the first awakening and it is followed by successive dawns that the vedic rishi speak about and each dawn brings a reversal of consciousness so every time there is a new awakening we look upon life upon ourselves in a new way so it is not a fixed philosophical system so the problem with fixed philosophical systems is that they reach a point and then they ask the mind to take that position it's like a belief system and with that position you look at life now the moment you take those presumptions you can look at life like that but shurbindo doesn't say that throughout the life divine he doesn't want us to take make any fixed presumptions or make us stop at any fixed uh, plane of thought that is the beautiful thing so it starts with this kind of quest she follows to the goal of those that are passing on beyond she is the first in the eternal succession of the dawns that are coming before this there is human night the night of ignorance and then with the awakening of this flame there is the dawn usha widens bringing out that which lives just as when the light comes we suddenly begin to see things which we didn't see so it begins to bring out that awakening someone who was dead this is what is the sign that we are alive <laughs> otherwise what is her scope when she harmonizes with the dawns that shone out before and those that now must shine she desires the ancient mornings and fulfills their light projecting forwards her illumination she enters into communion with the rest that are to come so it right in the beginning it see it's a progressive thought this thought doesn't stop at anything so the third you know shubindo's uh, thoughts on education is third key idea is that it should not anything should not be hammered into the mind so again in nowhere in the life you and we'll see that he is arguing as a scholar on the basis of so and so said so but this is the problem there is the deficiency he doesn't do that it flows as if there is a progressive awakening taking place and that is the beauty and where does it stop well it doesn't stop anywhere it takes us to the gates of the infinity and opens the door to the infinite horizons that are waiting for us and that's how i look at the life divine it's like um, uh, once one starts it frankly one can't stop it <laughs> at least I, uh, i had a very small very interesting incidents incident about it um, the life divine and savitri used to be on my table during a four days so once uh, two people came and they had heard that i have some interest in spirituality and that's how they understand so they came and asked me that sir we have a guru ji and he gives this experience that experience i said i it's not interesting to me this experience and that experience uh, i'm not uh, interested in that kind of thing yes experiences come that's fine so he said nahi 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 sir uh, uh, he'll be very happy if you come he said yes i understand but i won't be happy because i am not i have not interested he said sir what is your problem i said my problem is that i have these questions so i raised my standard questions i had quite a few stock questions 
from stalking me since adolescence. So I said, these are my questions. He said, sir, these questions only God can answer. I said, exactly. So God has answered for me. He said, how, sir? He thought that suddenly inside God came and answered like Moses' Ten Commandments. I said, see, here you see this book, The Life Divine and Savitri. God has answered these questions for me. And literally every question that one can ever raise, whether it be a question about what life is, where is it taking us, questions on rebirth, you know, uh, what about the other worlds? Do they exist? And if they exist, what is their bearing upon us? What really is God? What is this reality? Is it extra cosmic as we are told that God is sitting out there? Or is it imminent within creation? Or is it both and something else also? What really this cosmos is? Is there a mind which is dreaming out this various objects of creation, a cosmic mind? What is Maya? What is Ishwara? What is that primal state of indeterminate out of which determinisms proceed in creation? What really is supermind? The creator. How does, he, how does it create? How does he create? <laughs> is it like arbitrarily that six days God created and seventh day he took rest? Or is there a way to understand the ways of the creator? And where? what is really knowledge? What is ignorance? What is evil? The problem of evil? Normally we see traditional theories turning it upon ourselves. God made this world wonderful. Man came and spoiled it. As if man was consulted before making the world. (laughs) And as if man has such a say in it that the entire bug goes to man. So in life divine we see the divine saying that well, I am the originator and the bug will stop with me. (laughs) So he takes the full responsibility and full account. Nowhere have I found in any spiritual literature an ultimate reconciliation between the divine and the undivine. It is just, this is the last reconciliation of thought. Everything else we can reconcile. But when it comes to reconciling between the divine and the undivine, it's very difficult. There is a real resistance. What is inconscience? What really is involution? How does evolution take place? Even to a person who is purely interested in scientific understanding, um, we will see a, you know, a great meaning in it. Also, he puts everybody in its own place. Is, is there a sense behind the you know, tendency towards illusionism. Is there a sense behind the materialist completely denying God? Is there a sense behind all these scientific discoveries that are taking place? So, take anything, religion, occultism, um, science, what is their place in the total scheme of things? And ultimately, the most important, because most of these philosophies stop at a dead end. So what is the dead end? You realize the one or you realize the divine consciousness imminent above. It's like a dead end. But the beauty of the life divine is, and that's why it's going to live forever, is that it doesn't stop at a dead end. So it keeps you always youthful. Even when you have realized the one, what next? I remember a child of 15 once asking this question to a seemingly self-realized person. Sir, you are talking about self-realization. What happens after that? He had no answer. What happens after you have realized the self? Does life lose its meaning, sense, purpose? And if so, what is the purpose? Are you just continuing to act indifferently because you are beyond good and, uh, good and evil? If you are fulfilling divine will, what that will is? We always hear in the philosophical literature that ekoham bahushyam, the one wanted to become many, but why? And how? Can we participate in that venture? So the life divine is a complete handbook, like a blueprint of God's secret plan. So... As much as can be put into words, but of course, um, uh, whatever we read, as the mother has said, a spiritual teaching is only profitable if we are willing to live it. 
So especially in the last six chapters we see an intense uh, stress is on the practice and how we can not only arrive at um, all that is um, being revealed to us but also how we can, what is that inevitable fulfillment which is bequeathed that is the destiny of earth. So here we see that this Usha is picking up the dawns of the past and moving toward the future. So every day is the same and yet different. So every day there is a dawn and yet even materially when we see the sky shades are different. Today there was a very beautiful luminous bow, I don't know, uh, in Pondicherry sky. There was literally a bow made of light. So every day is very different when we look at it like that. Threefold are those supreme births of this divine force that is in the world. This is Agni, the flame. It is born in the material world. It is, of course, its home is in the higher supramental world. And in between, in the world of mind as, ray, as the lightnings of intuition. So threefold are those supreme births of the divine force that is in the world. They are true. They are desirable. He moves there wide over within the infinite and shines pure, luminous and fulfilling. So there is its own home. And here is the base where it's once lit, it grows. And then in the mind, in, the, in between the two, it manifests as the Vidvatagni, the lightnings of intuition. That which is immortal in mortals and possessed of the truth. Nityo Nityanam Chetanas Chetnanam is a God and established inwardly as an energy working out in our divine powers. Become high uplifted. O strength. This is the important one. Pierce all veils. Manifest in us the things of the Godhead. Vam Dev Rig Veda. Now look at Sri starting. Where does he start the life divine? We just read these two paragraphs. The first one and the last one. And see how it starts with human aspiration and ends with the divine life. So what really are we seeking? Often people ask, what is my aim? What is my aim? Now, my aim, people often mean their job. Job is a, you know, it's just what we do. Job is not a name. Job is a means. So, what really is my aim? My aim has to be somewhere or the other aligned with the larger aim in creation. It cannot be isolated from that. So, if the larger aim of the creation is fulfillment of the divine will, my aim should be how the divine will can be fulfilled within me. And if the aim is nirvana, then as Shubindu says that, well, somebody wants to believe in Mayavad, they are free to do that. But I don't think that the divine created this entire thing only for nirvana. So, if the aim is nirvana, then well, my action should be consistent with that. So, what really is the aim? The aim is within us in our own seeking. We don't have to consult anybody, look elsewhere. What is the aim? The earliest preoccupation of man in his awakened thought. So, that's where when she comes alive. There is a state of humanity which is as good as dead. That's why Shubhinda is described from the Rig Veda that she brings out the dead, makes them alive. So, you know, when Bible says that Christ raised the dead, so we shouldn't take everything, huh? literally, that suddenly there was a dead man and he started walking. He raised the dead. He awakened this flame of aspiration. He initiated them into a new life, into a greater birth. That's what it means. It's not like literally they were raised up. They were raised up in the sense that before the aspiration, human being is as good as dead. He is satisfied with the modicum of necessity. He is moving within a small little frame. And suddenly there is an awakening that, oh, there is infinite possibility. 
Just imagine, not only we wake up like a child, we, we are filled with wonder, like one filled with youthful energies, we are striving and seeking for the real and the unique and like the, I don't like to use the word old wise man, but the wise man, each such illumination fills us with a new splendor and a new body, beauty and delight. So the earliest preoccupation of man in his awakened thoughts and as it seems, his inevitable and ultimate preoccupation. For it survives the longest periods of skepticism and returns after every banishment is also the highest which his thought can envisage. Now very often people have this problem that Shubhindu writes long sentences. Shubhindu himself answered this. He said because truth has to be presented in totality. And often I quote this sentence as an example of that though there are much longer sentences. But here it, it is shown very beautifully. So he starts with this, all this is one sentence running into uh, nearly five lines. The earliest preoccupation of man in his awakened thoughts. So we can pause and read it like this. So there is a comma there. So earliest preoccupation of man. What is the earliest preoccupation of man? We were told that man was a hunter. He was gathering food. Look at the difference. What a tremendous start. You see, very often when you uh, go to watch a film or something, the start sets the tone. Normally you read books, where how do they start? They start with, you know, man was a hunter, gatherer of food. All that is behind, that's an animal humanity. The earliest preoccupation of man is awakened thought. Man is Manu, the thinker. If he is not a thinker, he is not yet man in his awakened thought. And... As it seems, his inevitable and ultimate preoccupation. Look at how the inversion, inverted philosophy says, man seeks only roti, kapda and makan. But what does a higher philosophy say? Man does not live by bread alone. So this is where it keeps returning. Even when all his outer necessities and more than necessities and desires and more than desires or all seemingly satisfied, he still seeks for it. It keeps returning. And what is it that keeps returning? His inevitable and ultimate preoccupation. Again, there is a dash. For it survives the longest periods of skepticism and returns after every banishment. So we see now he is qualifying everything. What is the earliest preoccupation of man? Since his awakened thought. So he is qualifying that. And then he says it's his inevitable preoccupation. Why? Because it keeps returning again and again. Even when there are periods when it has been banished completely. There are periods, as I said, just 100 years back or 120 years back, when the materialist scientist had declared that, well, there is nothing like God and it's all nothing but matter and uh, electron, proton, neutron energy. And we can explain the entire world based on that. And then came another material scientist said, hold on, hold on, hold on, there is something you don't know. And when they discovered it, they said, oh my God, our neat world has collapsed. And we have to re-explain it in a very new way. So it keeps returning after every banishment, skepticism and denial. Every banishment is also the highest which his thought can envisage. So this first preoccupation of man is the highest that he has ever envisaged. All else is in between. And what is that? He says, It manifests itself as the divinization, as the divination of Godhead. 
It has to be divined within us. It's not a technique through which divination, there is God within us. It's an intuitive sense within through which we divine that there is uh, a Godhead within us and we approach Him. Divination of Godhead. The impulse towards perfection. The cause of source of so much um, you know, stress and strain in life. Because the moment we develop at every level, we want perfection. It's inbuilt in human nature. Lot of conflicts are only because of this. You know, often because we want my partner to be perfect and the partner wants I should be perfect. But both of them want according to their idea of perfection that the other person should be perfect. But this is a subconscious yoga. Truly speaking, we are seeking a perfection. And what that perfection is? A wholeness. Every human aspect must be lifted to its ultimate truth, possibility and they all must form an integral whole. That's what is perfection which we are seeking. The search after pure truth and unmixed bliss. We get truths but not the one truth. And we get joy, pleasure and pain but not that unmixed bliss. The sense of a secret immortality. Always deep within us See, it's connected with life. It's not something about thought. We all, you know, like Yudhishthira's Kimasharyam, that question the Yaksh put him. Kimasharyam, what is the most surprising thing? And Yudhishthira says that every day we see human beings die, but we believe we are immortal. And we all, without an exception, when we say, tomorrow we are having live divine class, Everything has been presumed, including that we are going to be breathing. Of course, we must breathe. But this is inbuilt within us. We just forget death. And at one place, Shrabinda says, Because you are there, men forget to die. Because deep within us, there is this secret immortality. So this Kimasharam is not a Nirashavadi thing. You see, death is the reality. Human beings forget it. It actually is that because within us we carry the secret sense of immortality, therefore we forget to die. We live as if we will live forever and we act as if we live forever. Of course, under the shadow of death it comes as a spur and whiplash. The ancient dawns of human knowledge have left us their witness to this ancient to this constant aspiration constant we read the Vedas the Upanishads of course in other literature also we see this sense of immortality um, when we read some of these uh, Greek literature Gilgamesh the epic of Gilgamesh it's very fascinating story about search for immortality if you see some of the Egyptian legends we'll see that they are describing Lord Vishnu almost even the terms are very simple and I have this, uh, I mean, this is of course my own uh, idea, it may not be. So, idea means based on some kind of a, that there is a god called Nilesh. Now, who is Nilesh? Nilesh is the Lord Vishnu and Nile. Today we call it Nile. So, this entire civilization there, which was developed upon an idea of Lord Vishnu, the Aditya, and we have this god Ra, who is none else but the sun. So we have this everywhere, this seeking, ancient seeking. Now, was it primitive? Well, if it was primitive, everything primitive has gone. But the seeking, if anything, has come back redoubled in man. 
Has the seeking gone away? No. If anything, this itself is the proof that there is something which exists. Because all else is gone. All the outer, we don't know whether uh, actually Arjuna was there or not with his Gandhi even, you know, with capacity of those missiles and all. We don't know whether actually Rama walked the forest. I mean, I am saying that the outer historical details may or may not be found. But the seeking is the same which we see the Vedic Rishis when they chanted in Brihad Aranyak, Asadoma Sadgamya, Tamsoma Jyotirgamya, Mrityur Mamritam Gamya. It is still the same. It has survived the entire onslaught of civilizations. So here it is that this comes back. The ancient dawns of human knowledge has left us their witness to this constant aspiration. Today, we see a humanity satiated but not satisfied by victorious analysis of the externalities of nature preparing to return to its primeval longings. So you see, it's so interesting the way he has expressed this wonderful truth that he is connecting the ancient aspiration to today. And if you really look at it today, today is I mean, 100 years if you see, or even 50, 60 years. Which was the country where maximum of a kind of spiritual, I wouldn't say awakening, but a search started. Other than India, India is very privileged. Uh, though most Indians don't understand or realize it's unfortunate. But to be born in India is such a big privilege. But if you see which was the country where all this search started in a big way, it was in the U.S., which was in a certain sense the fort of materialistic thought. And there we see that suddenly the search began satiated but not satisfied. Returned to its primal longings. That's why we see the counterculture movement. That's why we see the Beatles. That's why we see many of these kind of uh, the hippies. Because people were searching for something. Even drugs, why the drugs came into existence? Because people were not happy that this is just a three-dimensional or call it four-dimensional, bringing in time, the world that we live in. And something within felt there are other dimensions. And that's how there was an explosion of LSD. Of course, this is a, not the approach towards other worlds. But it did release uh, the rational barriers of could be, could not be, maybe, may not be, and opened the doors to a kind of experience. Aldo Huxley calls it doors of perception, heaven and hell. A very different kind of perception. Certainly this is not only not the way but dangerous and one should never even look in at that side. But all this was because it was satiated but not satisfied. It was in a golden cage. The bird wanted to fly. You can make a bird live in a golden cage. But what does the bird want? It wants to come alive and fly. I remember speaking to some very big industry magnets in, um, well, a place. They had arranged in a big hotel, Seven Star, and all these magnets from that continent had come. And uh, totally typical club setting where they are all sitting on tables to eat. And <laughs> somebody wants you to speak 15 minutes on something about Shurabindo. And it was uh, quite a a repugnant atmosphere and there I saw in the corner they had painted a, this uh, you know love bird and it was painted and then there was a cage around I said this is a perfect symbol I said look here this is our state that uh, 
there is this bird of paradise within us, but it is not alive and it is in a cage. So it it's not happy being, you know, what does a bird want? You may tell us, you are so nice, give it everything, food to eat. It will say, parrot will say, everything that you feed to the parrot. But what does it really want? It wants to open itself to the vast expanse of the blue. It takes the challenge, it, is, it accepts the danger beyond a point, it can never be happy in, in that cage. Because it means its full possibilities are never uh, being unfurled. So here it is, nature preparing to return to its primeval longings. The earliest formula of wisdom promises to be its last. God, light, freedom, immortality. Doesn't matter... God is a word. We may not use the word God. We may not even use the word divine. We may say an eternal perfection. We may say a transcendent state. We may say a permanent of Buddhas. We may say Advait, one without a second. Doesn't matter. But an ultimate reality, man cannot be satisfied without discovering it. Light. And then freedom, of course, we, we know that we all seek freedom. Immortality. In various ways, man seeks it. And... Then he agrees that, well, if you look at uh, human life, it seems to be the complete denial of these possibilities. But these denials are the ways through which nature um, fulfills itself. It starts with denial and discord, but uses this as a material to fulfill itself. That's where we see the life divine closes, the last chapter, the divine life, the last passage. This is the first one. And see how Shabindo closes. It's something like a marvel. Often people say, what is the end point of this yoga? It's better to say infinity. <laughs> because if yoga were to have an end point, it means God is an end point. Yes, of course, the search is no more unconscious. We are conscious, participating in a movement from freedom to freedom. Joy to greater joy, light to greater light. But definitely there is no end to the manifestation of the divine infinite in terms of the finite. So here it closes with this passage. If there is an evolution in material nature, well, by that time it was more or less established. If there is an evolution in material nature, and if it is an evolution of being with consciousness and life as its two key terms and powers. So this evolution of being, this sense of being, this comes. So it is there inbuilt. If we look at entire, every object, we will see that there is within it a possibility of life. Even in matter, there is movement. And movement which is straining to come out, burst out as life. So in terms of consciousness, being, consciousness and life. So again we see consciousness in everything. We pick up the way seemingly unconscious plants act. And we see that their roots are guided precisely to reach out where they will find water. Or even if we leave aside, every day we will see how trees, I mean one is right outside my uh, room in Desiree. I see this tree and it's a marvel it's a big tree I think the name of the flower is first touch of the supramental light in the subconscious and there's a huge trunk which has gone this way almost you can do a jhula on it 
and then it is moving up. Why? Because it's seeking light. Even plant is seeking light. Who taught it? No, it knows light is there. It seeks for life and that's why it, in ignorance we think by eating, by hunger, this, this life is in that sense. Life, it's a cry for the infinite. This life which is constantly wanting more and more and more. So through this aspiration of more and more, one day we end up in, at the doors of the infinite. So consciousness we will see everywhere. Yes, it is submerged, so it's not evident to the form. In human beings, it begins to open itself to the possibility of conscious awareness of this which is the which is expressing itself. As its own key terms and powers, this fullness of being, fullness of consciousness, fullness of life must be the goal of development towards which we are tending and watch and which will manifest at an early or later stage of our destiny. So, the goal of the yoga is the same as the goal of life. Not self-annulment, but self-fulfillment. What a marvelous change and refreshing change. Otherwise, this world-negating philosophy where you Oh, everything. And the worst about this world-negating philosophy is you live with either a hypocrisy or a contradiction in thought. So I've often asked people who go to listen to this world negative, all is maya, all is maya. Yeah, then I ask them that, tell me honestly, if you really believe in this, why don't you just, you know, abandon everything and go towards it? That's what they are teaching, that it's all maya. It's an illusion. If you are convinced about it as an illusion, why you want to be in the grip of illusion? But that's where we have missed the aim of God in the world. But what that maya is, we'll talk later when at the appropriate place. But the purpose of life is self-fulfillment. There is a hunger for the infinite in man. But in ignorance, he tries it horizontally by objects, by devouring, by greed and hunger that is death. That's how the Upanishad puts it. But in the right way, by opening itself to the infinite, we can fulfill itself. But all that life divine, the life divine will reveal to us. But to start with, he gives us something so beautiful that the aim of life is to fulfill itself and it can only fulfill itself by discovering and bringing out the divine which is hidden behind life. The origin of life is divine, not some uh, you know, ignorant titan or asura has made it. Its origin is divine and therefore its destiny is to become divine. In between is all the different types of levels through which life climbs. So, it's our destiny. The self, the spirit, the reality that is disclosing itself out of the first inconscience of life and matter would evolve its complete truth of being and consciousness in this, that life and matter. So, if life has climbed from the void to man, already in man we can see glimpses of the sage and the saint and the seer. That means it is our inevitable destiny to become that in all the completeness and fullness. That is the logic. It would return to itself or if its end as an individual is to return into its absolute, it could make that return also. Not through a frustration of life, but through a spiritual completeness of itself in life. Because the goal of divine body was, Shobindo foresaw it is a far-off goal. 
So he says that to some it may be a fantasy, but divine life is possible right away. Divine body is a much longer process. So that's why he said even if there is a return, it should be through fullness of being, not through an annulment, not through an impoverishment, not through a constriction. Our evolution in the ignorance with its checkered joint pain of self-discovery. Look how he connects it with us. He's not just saying our evolution in ignorance is toward that. Through, look at it, through a, with its checkered joint pain of self-discovery and world discovery, its half-fulfillments, its constant finding and missing is only our first state. What a beautiful way he's describing us. We think we have found and we lose it. We think, oh, this is the one for whom my heart has waited for long and it's taken away. But in each of this and through each of this, we are moving towards a greater and greater state. It must lead inevitably towards an evolution in the knowledge. Right now the evolution is in the ignorance. And we'll, you know, pass beyond a critical line after which the evolution will be in the knowledge, a self-finding and a self-unfolding of the spirit. When the spirit knows itself within each and it unfolds itself through the instruments and the process of nature and the individual is a conscious participant in that process. A self-revelation of the divinity in things in that true power of itself in nature which is to us still a supernature. So all our nature is a preparation to manifest the supernature, meaning thereby that there are unknown powers, unknown possibilities, unknown capacities, still asleep in what we today call as nature. Ordinarily, when we call nature, we think about only this which has manifested. But nature itself is advanced. The nature of a material object, a stone, is very different from the nature of man. Meaning thereby, within nature, was an involved Godhead which was expressing itself through nature. So nature herself has developed. Stone cannot think but human beings can think. And But using the same material, the gene cannot think but human beings can think. So it uses, nature itself is tending towards a supernature. And the dreams of today are going to be the realities of tomorrow. Closing with these two lines from Savitri. Today's our gods pick and choose as its future base today's impossibilities. The impossible, earth's winged shimeras are truth's steeds in heaven. The impossible, the sign of things to be. So this, the rest is all the journey of the life divine, starting with human aspiration to this, to reach this state of complete self-fulfillment with S in with the capital S, or to put it another way, the divine. Fulfillment in creation of which man is meant to play a critical and crucial role. So that we will read as we go through the 15 or 14 classes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alokda, for uh, this wonderful lecture. Uh, you explained very beautifully and in brief the entire corpus of the life divine. You started by saying that the work of Sri Aurobindo connects the past with the future and in that process, he also brings something new. And that Sri Aurobindo himself refuted the idea of being influenced by Hegel and Nietzsche. And that 
he used to say constantly that if at all he was influenced by something it was by gita and the upanishads and not by the western philosophy as such and that uh, the life divine was shri aurobindo's own vision and own experience and that shri aurobindo used very long sentences because he believed that the the truths must be presented in totality and you made also very important points that because there is a secret sense of immortality within us and because of this we we forget at times that this body has to die and we live as though we will have to live forever and that many civilizations have uh, gone but the seeking for the truth and perfection has survived and it is still the same as it used to be uh, before the entire onslaught of human civilization and then uh, you also mentioned that the goal of yoga is the same as the goal of life and which is not self annulment but self fulfillment and you ended uh, with uh, saying that the dreams of today will be the realities of tomorrow so thank you so much sir and i would like to ask the audience if they have any questions they may go ahead yeah mananji please Uh, am I audible? Yeah, yeah, please. Yes, yeah. Okay, okay. Namaste, Alokda. Uh, uh, thanks for the yes, uh, very nice yes. uh, introduction. My question is around yes. uh, truth being simultaneous and uh, that being a critical uh, learning and practice that maybe the society needs right now, because we are so used to an either-or binary kind of a mindset, um, and it's quite difficult to uh, see it impartially. and then there are entanglements from say the vital and physical parts also so uh, you know like in the ukraine conflict for example right nothing is black or white and even most of the discussions that we have uh, in in india again there are lots of elements so how important is it to uh, use this uh, stress this in our education and in our conversations this nature of truth being simultaneous because uh i mean that that kind of a poise uh, resides in the higher ranges of the mind and isn't that an urgent need right now for uh you know the collective yes. yeah so thank you so uh, yes so uh, not only simultaneous truth being simultaneous but i would rather say even their interconnectedness so one is the vastness the you know satyam brahatam which is truth is simultaneous at many levels and layers and one can see different sides and standpoint but also rhythm so it's important to understand their interconnectedness and in the education level it's only possible uh, i quite agree that you know binary way of looking at it is rather you know now it's going out of fashion but what is replacing is lateral thinking that's okay that's that's like opening a door what is important is to train the mind towards a more global and synthetic outlook so in a certain sense um, um you know basically debating the practice in that if we look at it in one way so at least uh, i remember as a as you know i used to love debating but i would want to take a position which is not my favorite one because it trained my mind to instinctively just to see that can i look at it from a completely different standpoint so i think uh, if we can learn to have a synthetic thought wherein and mother speaks of in education as to mental education that one of the highest capacity of the mind just before the last one of course is to concentrate and enter into silence is the ability to synthesize thoughts so different kinds of thoughts the truth of mayavad and the truth of let's say 
you know, Shivananda will do that materialism as well as the truth of uh, the self-negating aesthetic, the truth of democracy and the truth of capitalism, the truth of dictatorship. All these are different truths which extend like fingers from one reality in which they are unified. Here they appear as divergent and different. So ultimately, the more we rise in consciousness, the thinking does become global. Right now it's linear and therefore binary. Because linear is always moving from one point to another. But if a global view, and that yes, should be there in education, one way as I said is to take up to opposites and find the synthetic thought. Um, uh, one exercise uh, I used to indulge in, um, I would often ask this question, uh, the sun rises from the east and I would say, are you sure? So <laughs> I'm not going to give the answer. I said, what if I say that the sun rises from the west? So think about it. So it was a way to just challenge the mind. And one of, one of the ways that I found, uh, best ways to challenge the mind and come out a binary thought is uh, mystic literature. In fact, in general mystic literature, thoughts of Rumi, for instance, they'll completely challenge the mind out of the... Uh, Typical mindset in which we are either or, good, bad. But best for us is Shurabindo's aphorism. They completely shake the mind out of its binary outlook. Like you were mentioning about the war. You see, Shurabindo at one point says, uh, you know, when <laughs> Europeans wage a war, it is uh, something like righteousness. Some, when Asiatics do it, it's a massacre. So he says, <laughs> mark the distinction. <laughs> so we must learn to look at every angle and different sides of truth. Uh, I am talking about mental level. At a spiritual level, highest level, it's all self-evident. So there is no need. But even then, it must express itself in a language which is complete and comprehensive. So quite in agreement with that. And education system, I think they are in some way trying it. Probably they should incorporate Yeah, Nilima ji, please go ahead. Namaste, Alokda. Uh, wonderful, Namaste, wonderful as always. You. Uh, you briefly touched uh, on a subject, I think you were referring to the use of plant medicine these days for going through, you say, trauma recovery. And it's become so widely available, uh, you know, marijuana as a medical thing and so on. So curious what you feel, uh, what her mother and Sri Aurobindo said about you know, so many spiritual teachers today are saying it's okay to, to work with these. So I'm curious what Mother and Sri Aurobindo have said. <laughs> well, um, with regard to, uh, uh, see, plant products is one thing. There are synthetic products also. So um, uh, like Ayuska, which you are mentioning right now. So the problem is that, yes, on one side, uh, they can and they do, you know, like Coolidge. So they may open a kind of door which is otherwise very tightly shut because we are shut in the box of reason and analysis. So we don't perceive many things because reason says they don't exist and our senses say that they are not there. And therefore they open the door. But most often uh, than not, they open the doors into... Because see, the, the other world is not just the other world. It's a many, many layered rainbow colored world. And when we enter into it, we don't know which range have we fallen into. And generally, depending on the consciousness, we gravitate into that world. So, number one, the problem is that supposing somebody is leading a life. So, these things were practiced by those who were practicing inner purity. And uh, with inner purity and tapas, one really didn't need this aid, except maybe sometimes as a very small um, 
you know, creating a little opening. But the big problem is that without that state of inner purity, somebody is leading a life which is, uh, you know, by purity I don't mean uh, just moral purity, etc. But something else. So, if this door was opened suddenly, one is living with greed, fear, um, anger, and one opens the door through the take, intake of these drugs, 99.9% will be projected into the lower vital words. I've seen this with patients, clients who have come to me. Uh, so it's definitely very dangerous. And if that 1% in whom maybe 0.1%, the door may open, no, no doubt about that. Uh, as I said, Kularich Kublakhan is one example. But it is, is it really, it's called as caste samadhi in the Upanishads. But is it really worth it trying that? Because given the risk of the contours of the other worlds, which are very, very, uh, I mean, they are intermediate world where death walks wearing the robe of deathless life. So, one should be very careful trying out these things. Third, the goal is never otherworldly. See, that's the beauty. The goal is to integrate the divine which is beyond all the worlds and yet is in all the worlds with this material life. So, our feet should be uh, like to use the Vedic image, one like the swan whose one feet is on ground and the other is uh, in the heaven. In between is all the intermediary world. In the Vedas, there is something which comes in one of the passages in the life divine as one of the quotes. That you will find truth only at two places. One is above in its own home and the second is in matter. In between in mind and life you don't find it because they are all mixtures. They are all half truths. So half truths can become very dangerous because we lose hold on this reality and not find the other. But yes, uh, I mean there have been experiments at least in the western context what these things did was that because yoga and all this uh, truth of yoga, um, they caught it very often with the wrong end. So these things came up and they did that much good that they opened the doors to alternate perception. So they broke this mental barrier that matter is the sole reality. To that extent, yes. But uh, with regard to cannabis use in um, especially CBD in chronic pain and all, that's a different thing. And I have a feeling it acts through mechanisms other than what we normally understand. But that's a little more technical subject but I do believe that pain sensation like everything else is like a habitual response of the body and if you can turn it away from that you can cut it down I practiced it but without taking <laughs> without taking uh, cannabis and it's possible to cut the pain from uh, the spot right up to the head while it is traveling purely by stilling the consciousness but it's very difficult to do it if pain is anywhere around the head in the eye, the tooth, because very close, the passage is very short. But much more easy to do it in the limbs and extremities or even in the abdomen, to an extent in the heart, though even there the nerves are very active. So there are other ways, safer ways, better ways, and which help us grow into yoga. So I would rather recommend that. But if somebody wants to use CBD oil is now available in some countries off the counter, so it's fine. Thank you. That's my, yeah. you know, what you said is what I would say to people. And yet there is such a, from healers out there, you know, saying uh, if it can heal trauma that's been stuck when nothing else has been working, then, you know, the shamans have been using it for centuries. So why is it being given a bad rep? But thank you. Thank you for your answer. So just one related uh, question on this theme, if I may ask. Yeah. Um, so is there yes. any uh, um, evidence of our civilization having something like this? I mean, the the... Sadhus of the lower rung, the ones who are, you know, not so pure or, you know, I don't know how to describe it. But is there, you, you do see them, um, you know, smoking things, 
um is there any yeah. any uh, you know restriction or any use of this as evidence in our culture so so as you rightly said you answered it actually sadhus of the lower rung so you see there are people who are drawn towards uh, higher things or alternate things alternate paradigms other worlds for variety of reasons many of them just to gain some powers many of them because they are curious onlookers but they cannot they are not ready to go through the rigors of yoga which does involve a certain kind of tapasya so the easy way out is this and because sadhus uh, you see uh, i'm talking of genuine sadhus not the fake ones i know people who uh, there was a young man who came from the west and it was so unfortunate uh, he got into the company of sadhus because he came all the way just to uh, he had heard about indian spirituality and he fall into fell into wrong hands and they stole everything of his including his passport passport to chhod dena chahiye tha lekin you know but this is the state so i'm not talking of them but i'm talking of that there are genuine people also genuine in the sense that they are Uh, mendicants to use that word so what happens there is that they break free from the social norms so you know normally these things are held back by the social uh, taboos so in a society they are not allowed so when man comes out of that norm he can awaken to both the god in him as well as the titan there is no kind of bondage or restriction on a sadhu's life so many of them start engaging in things which um, on one side they break free from the boundaries within which our evolution gets stifled it is also true but when you break free from the boundary you don't necessarily fly most of them gravitate so there is definitely evidence uh, in more modern times certainly though uh, there is a mention of caste samadhi in six types of samadhis and one of them caste samadhi which is supposed to be apparently uh, through the uses of certain drugs Uh, of course uh, people talk about in the vedic time som which somras which is extracted from the barley um, again there could be a physical you know like physical symbol uh, did exist but at the same time soma is ananda the delight of the divine which comes uh, from you know uh, the touch of the divine upon her life so i think this parallel approach did exist the easy way out in people who were not ready for that's why in the vedic language images they hit the real meaning because those who were not ready took the easy way out i look at it as simply nothing else but easy way out and easy way out most often land us in the land of deception uh, in what should be the calls is the valley of false glimmers where you may get even some powers because when the doors are open one may enter into even these lower vital worlds where there are powers and if one is seeking them but this is a total deceptive approach it can, it's very dangerous and disastrous but i know of people who do it that is also true and they quote it to tradition for instance there is a kind of tantra the um, you know the left hand tantra I'm, you know in ujjain there is ujjain you will find everything <laughs> with anta schools you will find tantra it also has the it has right hand left hand every kind of tantra and also of course mahakaleshwar so jyotirling you have shakti peet because mata sati's part had fallen there and sandeepan school where shri krishna studied so there they have a bhairav mandir which is dedicated to the left hand tantra so there to uh, the deity bhairav they actually offer uh, alcohol so Uh, people are taking me and you will see cobras here and there you know they are very happy having cobras around i said this is not a place where i would like to come and they offer it and they say this is prasad i said thank you so much but i am not interested in this prasad it's okay and then there is nearby a river where actually um, uh, there are 
तांत्रिक योगीज हु ड्रैग हाफ बर्ट यू नो डेड बॉडीज एन ईट इट ईट अ फ्लैश पोर्शन ऑफ फ्लैश नाउ देर इज अ ट्रूथ बिहाइंड इट नाउ द ट्रूथ इज दैट वेन श्री रामाकृष्णा वॉज प्रैक्टिसिंग तंत्रा ही वॉज टोल दैट यू हैव टू गेट रिड ऑफ एवरी जुगुप्सा जुगुप्सा इज श्रिंकिंग Shrinking means you cannot enter into the vastness. So Sri Ramakrishna said, "I can't do all this. You know that you have to eat flesh and all that." So they told him, "Ki okay, you have to taste the vista, which is the human excreta, and if you can taste it, it breaks your mental formation, the jugupsa." So he just tasted that to break that formation. So to that extent, these things are practiced to break very strong formations, and that's what we see. That's why probably the youth of today takes to these things because there is in them this urge to break from the rational, standardized scheme of things. Shubhendra describes it in Savitri in Kingdoms of the Greater Mind. Uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, the lower, the lesser mind, uh, the little mind, where toward the end they want to break free. So they try these things. But well, this is not the path. They need to be educated that this is not the way to go about it. So there is a kind of parallel tradition which we don't know since when people quote it like barley plant for soma, but that's not the truth that um, is really revealed in the real scriptures. The Vedas don't speak about it, but this is one of the interpretations people have drawn. And I draw a parallel just for one more moment. Is in Greek mythology. So in Greek, not mythology, in Greek uh, mystic literature, we had these Dionysians. So Dionysus and Bacchus, they were in contrast with Apollonians. Apollonians were very like Gyan yogis, rational way they were approaching. Dionysians and Bacchus followers were like Tantra. So they had this Ananda mark. Now those who could um, Really practice this in its ultimate. Uh, they were given a scepter, which was like a sign that he is a he has really arrived at that ananda. But later on, drunkards started using it. They just felt that you know, any which way I am going to experience this joy and delight. So later on, the Dionysians, you know, felt like anything. But look at in Savitri, Shubhendu speaks about them as um, Dionysian cup of joy. When he speaks about the new creation, so same thing happened. There has been a parallel approach, which I feel is an easy way out. And there are you can draw it from the mystic literature in the sense, if you look at it outwardly, like cow. Cow is the outward symbol of the outer cow, but inwardly it is the symbol of the light. But with cow, it works fine. But when it comes to you know <laughs> drugs, <laughs> soma, it doesn't work so well. Uh, but yes, it's true that. what what it does these drugs do they break us free from the uh, paradigm or the neat world in which we are living and therefore open us to a kind of uh, you know alternate uh, worlds which uh, in my view should not be tried or experimented because it's very dangerous to do that sir one fi- uh, last question for today uh, participant is asking that i find life divine very difficult to understand and i tried reading it but didn't understand anything as you mentioned we need to quieten the mind but is there any other guidance to read and understand at least a bit of it yes so um, reading the life divine in fact all of shirbindu's works i would say read a little at a time don't read it like a you know especially the life divine Uh, I mean, those who are prepared, it may be because it's a difficult intellectual reading from one standpoint. Or even the English is, of course, <laughs> you know, Cambridge English. So let's not forget that. So best is to uh, 
there are two ways. Best is to start with simpler works of Sri Aurobindo, where one gets into the thought. Like especially, I would suggest letters on Yoga Volume One. So you will see the thought of the Light Divine given through letters. Second, one gets into contact with Sri Aurobindo's English. So that is another beautiful thing. And then when you get back to the Light Divine, it will be relatively easier. Uh, the second way is to get the mind habituated to metaphysical thought as I said reading Shankara etc but it's a very long route once you have reached the life divine to go back to that so the third is read just a little at a time read maybe just one paragraph or half a paragraph and reflect upon it and then continue doesn't matter it's a lifetime uh, program if one wants to make it but let's not be in a hurry that I have to read one chapter two chapter every day it may be a little difficult I mean, not for everyone, but in general, it's good to read just one passage at a time and stay quiet. Yes. Thank you so much, sir, for clarifying our doubts. With this, we have reached the end of today's discussion. We will observe a minute of silence and then we can call it a day.